Well, once again, good morning. Welcome to Village. My name is Hannah, and I'm glad you're here. Also, um, quick note, happy Father's Day. I am not a father, as you can see, biologically or spiritually, but um, I'm standing here today in large part because of the fathers who raised and nurtured me in the faith. I was blessed with a dad who shared his own faith with me, and after he died my freshman year of high school, a number of other men invested in my life and helped me to continue to know and to love Jesus. So I take every chance that I get to encourage people in the ministry of spiritual fatherhood and motherhood, of nurturing God's children, whether they happen to belong to you biologically or not. And I want to say on behalf of those children, however old they may be, thank you and happy Father's Day. This morning, we heard a story about one particular child of God, a demon-possessed man who is rescued and adopted by the ministry of Jesus. This man was estranged from his own family, possibly for years. His is one of the longer stories in the book of Mark, but we never even learn his name. He's known only as the demon-possessed man, or some translations call him the demoniac. Now, when we read a story like Mark chapter 5, and this is true for a lot of the biblical narrative, we're often tempted to interpret it in one of two ways. So the first way is just to take it at face value, right? Jesus casts out a demon. He heals a man. So this is obviously a story about Jesus' supernatural ministry to one person. And that's a good and true way to read this text. Jesus absolutely sets people free from real, literal, demonic possession, full stop. Now, another way to interpret this story is to read between the lines, as it were, and to approach it from more of a literary perspective. You know, what is Mark trying to tell us through the characters and the symbols in this story? For example, many interpreters read a story about Jesus entering a Roman-occupied territory, region of the Gerasenes, and casting out an unclean legion as a judgment against political corruption and injustice. And guess what? That is also a good and true way to read this text. The beauty of Scripture is that it is layered. The ministry of Jesus is layered. And actually, we miss out on the fullness of God's Word when we read it one-dimensionally. When we read Mark 5 as merely about Jesus setting individuals free from spiritual oppression, we miss out on the systemic and the societal dimension of Jesus' kingdom project. But when we read it merely as a metaphor about politics and economics, we miss out on the fact that the power of evil is much more insidious than flesh and blood. And of course, you can see how these two different interpretations map onto our current ideological divides, even in the church. You know, some insist that the gospel only applies to the moral and spiritual problems of individual people. Others insist that the gospel is really about social change and renewal. But the reality is that the gospel does both. So we have to read the Bible and this story with both eyes open so that we can see the whole picture with greater clarity. And of course, the picture begins and ends with Jesus. So we're gonna start with him. And what we see Jesus doing in this story is flipping the script with regard to purity and cleanness. Let me explain. In Jewish culture, God was considered clean or holy. 
He was pure, totally set apart from creation. So to be in God's presence, one had to be cleansed, purified and sanctified, undefiled by the world. And anyone who approached the temple where God dwelt, uh, if you approached the temple in an unclean state, you were in danger of judgment. And so there was a very elaborate system of what constituted uncleanness and what rectified it. And this is important. Uncleanness was contagious. Meaning if you touched or came into contact with something unclean, even if it was an accident, it made you unclean too. And then you had to go through a timely process of purification before you could be considered clean and enter the temple again. So you might be familiar with the story of the Good Samaritan and how the priest and the Levite, two Jewish VIPs, pass by the bloody victim lying stranded on the road. These guys often get a bad rap for ignoring a neighbor in need, and they should. But they're also playing by the rules of cultic purity because coming into contact with a dead thing, a corpse, would make you unclean. And even a priest would be unable to perform his temple duties for seven days afterwards if he got close enough to a corpse. So these guys were avoiding uncleanness. But now here in Mark chapter 5, we see Jesus encountering the height of uncleanness. So it's a Gentile man, the Gerasene, unclean, who literally lives among the dead in the tombs, unclean, and who is possessed by a demon, which of course in this story is called an unclean spirit. That's intentional. But instead of avoiding this man for fear of contamination, Jesus heals him. Instead of catching our impurity, our uncleanness, Jesus infects us with his holiness. He reverses the pattern of purification by making the unclean clean. This is the power of the gospel. When Jesus encounters the unclean, he makes it clean. Mark repeats this theme throughout all of chapter five because after healing of the demon-possessed man, Jesus goes back to Galilee where he is touched by a woman with the flow of blood, another classic example of uncleanness. Let's just call it bodily discharge. But instead of being defiled by her, she is actually healed by him. It says, immediately after touching Jesus, the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Well, then after his conversation with the woman, Jesus goes into yet another unclean situation when he enters the room of a dead girl. Again, technically against the rules for a religious leader. But Jesus enters the room and then goes even further by touching her hand. And instead of becoming unclean when he touches her, the little girl is raised to life. When Jesus touches death, it is death that dies. When Jesus encounters the unclean, he makes it clean. This is a good reminder for us because I think many of us are stuck in the wrong pattern. We think we have to wash ourselves, to clean ourselves up, to be made worthy of God. Or we fear that if he sees any unclean parts of us, you know, the impurity or the defilement that still occupy maybe corners of our minds or our lives, that will be disqualified, banished. So we either avoid God entirely, or we hide the things we think that he won't like. We come to church and we fake it. I know this dynamic well because I grew up with it. <clears throat> and I actually deeply wrestled with it myself. 
As long as I can remember, I felt a very clear call to ministry. But in high school, I also developed some really bad habits, some practices and behaviors that I knew were not compatible with a life devoted to Christ. And I remember thinking as a teenager, well, God can never use me now. I've been compromised. I had internalized this message about uncleanness, and I thought it was a permanent obstacle, or at least it was one that I didn't know how to overcome myself. So I developed something of a double life. I kept doing all the Christian things, but I kept doing all the other things too, until I got caught. And that was painful, painful teenage experience, extremely painful, but it was also healing because it integrated me. It forced me to bring my uncleanness into the light of my community and to realize that Jesus was powerful enough to heal me, that actually he is the one who makes us clean the one who rehabilitates us. We can't fix ourselves, but we don't have to hide from the one who can. So instead of hiding, we need to do what the demon-possessed man did. We need to run to Jesus, anticipating the power encounter that is to come. We need to be like the woman with the flow of blood who pushes through the crowd to get to Jesus in order to touch him, because ultimately he is the solution to our uncleanness. And Mark shows us that he seeks us out for this very purpose, to heal and restore and rehabilitate us, to cleanse us and to make us holy. Later this morning, we will celebrate First Communion with a few of our young people who were baptized last week. And they'll come to the table for the first time today to receive the body and blood of Jesus. But it won't be because of anything they've done to earn it, and it certainly won't be because they're perfect. Sorry, guys. But they come, and we come, because we have been washed by the waters of baptism. We have been made clean by the touch of God, a pure gift received only by faith. And every week we come to remember and reenact this powerful reality when we kneel to confess our sins when we hear the pronouncement of God's forgiveness, and then when we come to the table open-handed to receive. Jesus makes the unclean clean. So we can reach out and touch him, because in doing so, we are the ones who are changed and restored. So that's Jesus. He's the protagonist of the story. But now I'd like to look at the other characters in Mark 5, starting with the townspeople. They show us a lot about the impact of Jesus' cleansing and renewing ministry among us. And it's actually kind of surprising. Look at how they respond to his miracle. This is verse 15. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who'd had the legion, sitting there clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. This is not the reaction you would expect in a miracle story, especially one in which a man who had been as powerful as the demon-possessed man is restored. I mean, here was a guy so strong that when they had tried to bind him with chains, he broke them to pieces. A man who cried out day and night and cut himself with stones. That is some scary stuff to have living near your neighborhood. And yet somehow, the people of the region preferred the demoniac to the miracle. 
somehow the townspeople had made sense of the world with the demoniac. They'd come to terms with his incurability, with his isolation. They had made peace with the fact that he was relegated to the outskirts of society. It was only the poorest of the poor who lived among the tombs in this time period, so it's not like the demoniac was interfering with the gentry. But when 2,000 pigs run into the sea and drown themselves, that makes an impact on the economy. That changes things. What we see is that Jesus' ministry is disruptive to the status quo. It affects not only individuals, but societies. Jesus' kingdom creates a new social order that necessarily disrupts the old. Now, we don't know exactly why the Gerasenes were afraid and asked Jesus to leave, but we do need to ask the question, did they prefer their pigs to the restoration of a human being? Would they rather the man stay possessed? At least he was a problem they knew how to live with. This new and greater power, this Jesus, was much more unsettling. If he can tame the demoniac, what else might he do among us? It might be easy to just now dismiss the Gerasenes as heartless or cowardly people, but the reality is we all do this. We arrange our lives around our personal and societal dysfunction, and sometimes we even find ways to benefit from it. We know that if Jesus gets involved up in here, he's going to shake things up. And if we're really honest, we're not always sure we want him to do that. We don't always want him to get involved with our relationships or our sexual habits. We don't want him interfering with our financial crises or our secret addictions. They may cause trouble for us, but at least it's a trouble we're familiar with, right? Living with dysfunction is hard, but sometimes change feels even harder. I think this is part of why Jesus asked the paralytic in John chapter 5. This is a man who'd been paralyzed for 38 years. Jesus said to him, do you want to be healed? It's actually a piercing diagnostic question, and it's worth asking of ourselves. Do we really want Jesus to heal us? Do we really want him to heal our society? Or are we complicit? Are we profiting from the brokenness around us? In a prophetic speech given almost a decade before the Civil War, uh, former slave Frederick Douglass spoke plainly about the evils of slavery at an Independence Day celebration event. He said, fellow citizens, the existence of slavery in this country brands your humanity as a base pretense and your Christianity as a lie. It destroys your moral power abroad. It corrupts your politicians at home. It fosters pride. It breeds insolence. It promotes vice. It shelters crime. It is a curse to the earth that supports it. And yet you cling to slavery as if it were the sheer anchor of all your hopes. Oh, be warned. Be warned. A horrible reptile is coiled up in your nation's bosom. For the love of God, tear away and fling from you the hideous monster. Let the weight of 20 millions crush and destroy it forever. Making peace with demons is easier than we might think. And being delivered is more disruptive than we might think. But this is exactly what we are called to do. The gospel compels us to come forward and be healed, 
to release the hideous monsters that cling to us and to which sometimes we ourselves cling back. And then as recipients of God's healing and deliverance, we are called to partner with him in delivering others. This is the last point we'll reflect on today, turning now to the fate and future of the demoniac himself. After being restored, this man is the only person in the region who is grateful to Jesus. He's the only one in the town who embraces Jesus' ministry. And he's just essentially had his own world overturned. So the exorcism might have been disruptive for the townspeople, but it was actually just as disruptive to the man. What's he supposed to do now that he's not possessed? Where's he going to live? He certainly isn't going to stay among the tombs and babble all day and night. He needs a new routine, a place, a sense of purpose. So naturally, he thinks maybe he can stay with Jesus. In fact, isn't it interesting? The townspeople beg Jesus to leave, verse 17, but then in verse 18, the restored man begs to stay with Jesus. He's a very polarizing figure, this Jesus. But anyway, the man wants to go with him, but Jesus says no. Instead, he sends the man out on mission. Verse 19, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And the man went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. So the demoniac becomes a missionary, an apostle to the Gentiles. This is not so different from the woman at the well in John chapter 4, another societal outcast who is restored and then sent out to proclaim God's saving works. Jesus makes the unclean clean, and then he sends them out among those who are unclean. They participate in the pattern of their own renewal. And this, at base, is the Christian vocation. It is to be cleansed and then to participate in the cleansing of others. We are washed washers. And this is all of our calling, whether we feel particularly equipped for it or not. We actually get a hint of that in the very beginning of this story, right there in verse 1. It says, they came to the other side of the sea. Jesus is the healer, but he brings his disciples along with him. At the end of chapter 4, he says to them, let us go across to the other side. Jesus takes his disciples on a journey that has one purpose, to meet the Gerasene demoniac and to heal him. That's literally the only thing Jesus does in this town. After the man is healed, they get back in the boat and return to Galilee. So Jesus could have gone by himself to do this, but he recruited his disciples to come with him, to apprentice him on mission, to see how he moves toward the very messiest problems of society in order to renew and restore. And if the story in chapter 4 has anything to do with the events of chapter 5, and spoiler alert, I think it does, then it tells us something about this ministry of Jesus and what to expect when we are recruited to be a part of it. You see the boat ride in chapter 4, their voyage to meet the demoniac, is the famous story of Jesus calming the storm. You may remember how Jesus is sleeping on the boat when a storm comes, and the disciples are indignant, and they wake Jesus up, and then he calms the sea. So we often allegorize the storm uh, in this story as the storms of life, right? 
the troubling circumstances that we face and Jesus' ability to speak peace to us in the midst of them. And that's a true way to read the story. But again, scripture has layers of meaning. And when we put the story of the storm next to the deliverance of the demoniac, we see another theme at work too. We see in the storm the spiritual warfare at work going on as Jesus sets his face toward the region of the Gerasenes. We see the chaos in creation as its Lord rides out to bring peace and order to the afflicted. And we see how the unsuspecting disciples are caught in the middle of all this, feeling bewildered and even betrayed by their master sleeping in the boat. God has called you to partner with him on mission, but don't expect it to be a smooth ride. Don't expect your obedience, your, your yes to God, to get neat and tidy results in this world. Ministry is a storm. We have an enemy. Whether you are seeking to love your neighbor across the street or seeking to end human trafficking in our city, you can and should expect opposition. The creatures of God have an enemy. But Jesus has come to set them free. So don't be afraid. Remember Jesus asleep on the boat. He is our guide on this journey, and he is not anxious. He is greater than our enemy, and he will accomplish exactly what he sets out to do, both in us and through us, for the life of the world. Let me pray. Lord, we pray that you would help us to believe, O oh Lord. Help us to come to you in faith, knowing that you can cleanse and renew and restore and empower us to partner with you in that beautiful work in the lives of the people around us. Amen.